We'll intervene whenever we decide it's in our national security interest to intervene. And if you don't like it, lump it. The problem with America is not that we go around marauding around the world imposing ourselves. Mm. The problem with America in the last 10, 15 years since the end of the Cold War, really in the last 60 years, is that we've been too slow to get involved. I don't know how many Iraqi civilians were killed, but I can assure you that the number is the absolute minimal that it's possible uh, in modern warfare. Every nation in every region now has a decision to make. Either you are with us or you are with the terrorists. Now, that land over there is yours. You'll go back to it one day because your fight will prevail and you'll have your homes and your mosques back again because your cause is right and God is on your side. Welcome to the darkened hour. Today's discussion will be surrounded on the Luxor massacre, which saw the killing of 62 people, mainly tourists from Australia, on November 17, 1997 at Deir el-Bahari, which was an archaeological site and major tourist attraction across the Nile from Luxor, Egypt. The attacks were thought to have been instigated by exiled leaders of Al-Gama Islamia, headed by Omar Abdel Rahman, the Blind Sheikh, which is an Egyptian Islamist organization which was attempting to undermine the organization's nonviolence initiative to devastate the Egyptian economy and provoked the government into repression that would strengthen support for anti-government forces under Egyptian President Hosni Mubarak. The attacks had a reverberating effect, not just in Egypt, but around the world. And the goal of the attacks failed miserably. But one thing was for certain, that the Islamist problem in Egypt had to be suppressed. One such person who is already in US custody and doing a life sentence for his role in the 1993 World Trade Center attacks and the landmarks plot was Sheikh Omar Abdel Rahman جمع إسلامية فأي تجارة أرضح من هذا وأكثر الإيمان بالله ورسوله والجهاد في سبيل الله بالمال والنفس تؤمنون بالله ورسوله وتجاهدون في سبيل الله بأموالكم وأنفسكم ذلك خير لكم إن كنتم تعلمون The Torah prison in Egypt witnessed many painful torments, much likened to a Hellraiser novel by Clive Barker. It created a dreaded sense of helplessness, unrelenting sense of dread and mental degradation. The excessive uses of medieval torture from the Mahabeth Amen al-Dalwa, or the State Security Investigation Services, in short, the SSI, is Egypt's oldest and most brutal intelligence service have been well known in the region and around the world. Under former President Gamal Abdel Nasser, the SSI were trained by another current intelligence entity known to use excessive acts in extrapolating information 
from unwilling victims on their own, the Soviet Union's KGB. Nasser had dealt prominently with the fundamentalists for some time in the Muslim Brotherhood under Hassan al-Banna, even making the Brotherhood retreat underground for years, in which recruits of the SSI went through rigorous training, even made to learn the arts of espionage and deception. This made the SSI exceptionally successful in penetrating Egypt's most strict religious sects. So successful was the agency in infiltration of radical organizations that they would train other countries in the ruthless dark arts in Algeria and Syria. The Syrian government under Hafez al-Assad had success in derailing the radicals for years, which transferred over to his son, Bashar al-Assad. The ideology of Arab nationalism, also known as Nasserism, was fundamental to the country's progression and also its foreign policy. Egypt began taking a road they had dreamed, which was port trading with the Soviets, France, Spain, and even the United States. Meanwhile, one of Egypt's most ardent religious scholars and formidable adversary to the ideology of Pan-Arabism, Saeed Qutb, began openly criticizing the Egyptian government. Qutb's return from the United States reversed his previous thoughts. He became alarmed at the West's unnecessary, wasteful, and illicit ideas of life. With his view regarding the Arab world trying to advance to this lifestyle under Nasser, Qutb became his primary adversary. Nasser had falsely promised Qutb and the Brotherhood after his coup d'etat using the free officers movement to subjugate the British imperialistic powers. Qutb had not envisioned Egypt under Nasser's plans, but his own, which was a theocratic state governed by Islamic law under the Quran and Sunnah. However, these ideas were rejected. Nasser had used the Brotherhood to overpower King Farouk's government. It was a success. But by 1954, however, Nasser declared the Brotherhood outlawed. Qutb was arrested and summarily executed on August 29, 1966. However, with his death came a sense of unity within the ultra-Orthodox in the Arab world. Qutb's execution was universally seen as an act of martyrdom. He dared face off against Nasser, and even though he was killed for it, his power would be felt in his death. Nasserism wouldn't face eventual extinction until it was dealt a potentially fatal blow when the palatable nation of Israel saw to the military defeat of not only Egypt, but also Jordan and Syria in the Six-Day War. Key Arab states, which were relatively free from Islamic fundamentalism, this defeat witnessed a sense of dread within the Islamic community as a whole. The collective disdain for Arab socialist governments and the retribution came from the underground monoliths, which grew in silence. By the early 1970s, the Brotherhood had gained traction and grew to many Arab cities. In countries that were free from its questionable theology, known as Wahhabism, countries such as Syria, Algeria, Jordan, Iraq, and Egypt were now coming under the fold of the Islamic fundamentalists. By the near end of the period, the tilt was beginning, and in 1979, it witnessed a birth which extended to the countries which helped shape its foundations. 
Saudi Arabia saw radicals overtake the Grand Kaaba in Masjid al-Haram in Mecca. It also witnessed the Iranian revolution when Ruhollah Khomeini helped overthrow the US-backed Mohammad Reza Pahlavi, the last Shah of Iran. And it also witnessed the capitulation of the Islamic Ummah in Afghanistan with the Soviet invasion of the city of the country's capital in Kabul. The Al-Gamma Islamiyah, or the Islamic group, was born out from its Egyptian universities and were loosely affiliated with their terrorist networks in the 1960s. They remained largely underground, unnoticeable toward Egyptian society. Their core members were from Egyptian universities and recruited heavily there. The group began taking on some notice and gained ground with the Egyptian lower class who wished for an Islamic rule of law. Under Sadat, these groups began to become more prominent as unlike its predecessor, Nasser, Sadat was far more tolerant toward the religious sector. Soon, many of the university's brightest students would become under the tutelage of Gemma Islamiyah, one of its leading spokespeople who taught at Cairo University was Omar Abdel Rahman, also known as the Blind Sheikh, for he was born blind. These events would slowly begin to come full circle, but not until the final coup de grace. Egypt had witnessed varying sects of Islamism. Many were the proponents of Qutub and the Brotherhood, whom were unorganized and without structure. Save the Brotherhood, only al-Jihad had been somewhat collected led by Muhammad Abd al-Saddam Faraj, who led the Cairo branch of the group, this cell was considered the more militant than its sister in the south of the country, which were led by intellectuals. Faraj had excelled in Cairo University, studying electrical engineering, and once worked as an administrator in the school. However, in the dark crevasses of the embittered city of Cairo, Faraj was known as a fervent believer in Qutub's ideology, Egypt's president Anwar Sadat was not seen nearly as strict with the fundamentalists and promised actual reform. He allowed many of them to be released from prisons throughout the country, a mistake which would later have fatal consequences. Many of the Muslim Brotherhood members had now saw fit to extract revenge on the system, which gave them nothing but motivation in regards to their torturous experiences. Sadat also saw Egypt lacking in true political reform as well. It was a simple decision to mend problems between Israel and the Egyptian government, which saw Sadat's final days. And on March 26, 1979, just seven months following the Camp David Accords, which was a peace treaty finally signed by Sadat and Israeli Prime Minister Menachem Begin in Washington, D.C., the Egyptian fundamentalists, who never forgotten the defeat at the hands of Israel in 1968, witnessed another transgression. Faraj immediately took notice. Other notable Egyptian members, such as Dr. Ayman al-Swahari, Karam Zudi, the al-Jihad leader in southern Egypt, and Omar Abdel Rahman of Jamaat al-Islamiyah, had begun taking the steps to eliminate the threat from the country in Anwar Sadat. Faraj began holding evening meetings with members of the Egyptian military who were affiliated with al-Jihad which was later renamed to Egyptian Islamic Jihad. The idea had been proposed to him by Khalid Islambouli, a lieutenant in the Egyptian army whom Faraj had invited to join al-Jihad when he posted to Cairo six months before. 
Abu el-Zomar, an intelligence officer and member of the Egyptian Islamic Jihad, had also come on board with this idea. On October 6, 1981, Anwar Sadat was assassinated as military trucks pulled up next to the podium facade, which saw Sadat sitting just behind the front row. The Egyptian government now saw former Vice President Hosni Mubarak, whom was injured as he was sitting next to Sadat. Under Mubarak, he immediately ordered an investigation into the incident in which hundreds of the religious Egyptians were arrested. Even if they were simply suspected as having any ties to any religious organization, and even if they weren't fundamentalist. Faraj was taken into custody and even gave his arresting officers the truth of the matter. Bluntly, Faraj stated, the basis of the existence of imperialism in the lands of Islam is these self-same rulers. To begin with the struggle against imperialism is a work which is neither glorious nor useful, and it is only a waste of time. It is our duty to concentrate on our Islamic cause, and that is the establishment first of all of God's law in our country and causing the world of God to prevail. There is no doubt that the first battlefield of the jihad is the extirpation of the infidel leaderships and their replacement by a perfect Islamic order. And from this will come the release of our energies. Faraj, as well as Islambuli, Zomar, Zudi, Rahman, and Al-Swahari were all detained and arrested for their alleged role in Sadat's death. Al-Zwahari experienced horrific acts of torture for the SSI wanted the final piece of the puzzle. Isam al-Kamari, who was a decorated tank commander and major in the Egyptian army, which was suspected of smuggling military weapons to members of the Egyptian Islamic Jihad. Al-Zwahari's painful indulgences of remaining silent would met with cigarettes to the face, sitting naked in a wooden chair with nails, and burns over his back by hot irons. It led him to finally set up his dear friend, Al-Kamari, an act he admitted in his book, Nights Under the Prophet's Banner, that he never forgave himself for. However, Faraj and Islambuli were executed for their involvement in Sadat's assassination. While in prison, members of the Al Jama Islamiyah, led by Karam Zudi, have begun noticing Omar Abdul Rahman had appealed for Emir. It led to division within the group. Rahman was seen as a fiery leader, however, Zudi, its more stalwart protagonist. Members of this group began to speak out to the media following their torture, which was at times quite brutal in its own right. In its broad meaning, as both an ideology and practice, we are not kind, we are not sorry about we have offered for our religion and we have sacrificed and we are still ready for more sacrifices till the victory of Islam. 
Zudi have reiterated that because Rahman was blind, he could not be trusted to lead the organization, while Dr. Ahmed Al-Zwahiri, as you just heard on audio, would relate his experiences as well as others under the brutal SSI treatment. With Abu Del Zaman in prison, the Egyptian Islamic Jihad was now under Dr. Ayman al-Zwahiri's leadership, which saw him expelled from the country and saw himself situated in Afghanistan. A perfect situation for someone willing to extract revenge on the world in regards to his excessive torturous experiences in Cairo prison. Omar Abdel Rahman was finally released due to him being blind. He was saved from being physically harmed by his jailers. The country saw fit to release him, for which in 1990, he landed in the United States, given a dual entry visa by a consular officer who was also a CIA case agent with Rahman under a terrorist watch list. It didn't matter, it seemed, as he was able to supply and apply successfully for a U.S. visa four times. The Gamma Islamia, however, saw fit to become unlike the Egyptian Islamic Jihad. Instead of returning on the ground and recouping, they immediately began revamping terrorist operations against the Mubarak government. After the assassination of Sadat and the mass arrest of Egypt's leading religious figures, Hosni Mubarak feared the retaliation from an angry public. Thus, Mubarak began a strict crackdown of known terrorist cells operating within the city of Cairo. Mubarak wanted to make amends with Arab Arab countries. Thus, he saw a rekindling political amends with King Fahd in Saudi Arabia. This would begin reasserting Egypt back into the Arab World League, which banned Egypt from its organization after Sadat's deal with Israel 
Iraq and Iran have begun their conflict. And with the Ayatollah calling on overthrowing Western backed regimes for which he called the Saudi monarchy and Hussein government proxies to the United States. Egypt began taking on notice under Mubarak as a strategic ally, while the Israel-Palestine issue took a back seat with multiple Arab conflicts happening. Unlike Sadat, Mubarak saw the Palestine issue as tantamount to peace, and in return, he neglected to meet with Israeli officials. He is also seen as a pragmatist, and by defying the Israeli government under Begin, Mubarak met with the Palestinian Liberation Organization leader Yasser Arafat in 1983. Mubarak knew the key to financial aid was to amend relations with foreign governments and repairing the Egyptian social sector for improving employment. This, in turn, would quell the fanatics from Egypt's terror cells and manipulate the poor to gain favor in overthrowing the government. Because of this, Mubarak won the people's favor. And in 1987, he won his second term. The break in extremist violence, however, was short-lived. By 1990, Mubarak continues his aggressive conduct toward the terrorist cells who are vying for new recruits while hanging around Egypt's universities. The silence came to an end on November 12, 1990, as two Egyptian security officers were wounded in a fierce gun battle against two other extremists at the Asuit University, located in Asuit government, uh, government northeast of the country. The officers had been detailed to the courtyard to act as a deterrent, knowing well that clerics had been recruiting there for months. Aswit is also home to the most Coptic Christian churches in the country. A half dozen churches were burned in the previous spring in the towns of Minya and Aswit in Upper Egypt as the purge of Coptic minorities began. Coptics are seen as takfir, or fake Muslim, to the Salafi-minded Islamists. This conflict led to a domino effect between Egypt's security forces and members of the Gamma Islamia. The clashes led to week-long battles to which police arrested 67 members of the group after a clash in which youths threw Molotov cocktails and set a police vehicle ablaze. One such battle with Egyptian officers led to the death of Allah Mohodin, one of the Gamma Islamia's prominent leaders. No longer could Mubarak contain the potential growth of terrorist activity in the country, and so he used Egyptians' armed forces to begin on the defense. Rifat al-Makoub, an Egyptian parliament speaker, was shot dead while in his car on the streets of Cairo. The suspects, members of the Gamma Islamia, who saw this as revenge for Mohodin, but it only escalated the conflict even further. Mubarak struck back, and the crackdowns began again. Terrorist operations would extend even further, far beyond Egyptian borders. In just two short years, it would visit the United States in one of the country's most financially proficient and renowned cities, New York City, and the World Trade Center. On February 26, 1993, the B-2 level located in the North Tower of the World Trade Center had a gaping hole, billowing smoke, which flowed colored and pitch black out of the garage entrance. A rider truck outfitted with multiple canisters of urea nitrate was timed to explode. Its objective? To fall down the North Tower into the South Tower, hereby falling over into Lower Manhattan, killing approximately 250,000 people, according to its mastermind, 
Ramzi Yusuf. However, the North Tower stood fast, and Yusuf would be captured in Pakistan, but not before his other associates had also been arrested. They were from the Al Furuk Mosque in Atlantic Avenue in Brooklyn, as well as the Masjid El Salam in Jersey City, New Jersey, the latter being where Rahman had preached numerous times. The FBI had begun suspecting Rahman as being involved with the bombing, but they couldn't prove it. By 1995, however, Yusuf was captured in Pakistan with the help of the ISI and the U.S. Diplomatic Security Service. Yusuf was rather open about his involvement, but Rahman was never mentioned, not once under interrogations. The FBI, however, deployed a disbarred informant who was supposed to be with the primary builder of the World Trade Center bomb initially. Uh, he was an Egyptian himself, Imad Salem. Salem agreed with the FBI authorities. But while he lived with the blind sheikh and traveled across most of the central states and the Northeast, he was given a task to record Rahman, in which he was met with, const he was met with constantly but couldn't get anything of value. The FBI had rented a warehouse in Jamaica, Queens, outfitted with listing devices and cameras to which the New York Joint Terrorism Task Force and the FBI were constantly monitoring. Salem one day would meet with Sadiq Sadiq Ali, a Sudanese national. Salem pitched an idea to bomb certain New York City landmarks, including George Washington Bridge, Brooklyn Bridge, United Nations, and the FBI building. Ali agreed to relate this to others who would assist Salem in building multiple bombs. This operation would be named the Landmarks Plot, after which the FBI and the Joint Terrorism Task Force arrested, while in construction of the bombs, all the players involved, including the ever-elusive Omar Abdelrahman. This would also include an already imprisoned El Said Nusser, whom two New York City detectives, John Anticep and Louis Napoli of the Joint Terrorism Task Force, had found out that he was also a member of the Jama Islamiyah and responsible for the murder of radical Jewish fundamentalist Rabbi Meir Kahana in 1990, to which Nocer was found now guilty of, but found guilty of other charges. Nocer would be the contact that Salem had to meet in 1992 and whom gave him the idea to bomb the World Trade Center and later in 1993 to attack certain areas in the landmarks plot. Nocer would be found guilty and given a life sentence. On October 1st, 1995, a New York jury reached guilty verdicts on 48 of 50 charges. Sheikh Abdel Rahman was convicted of seditious conspiracy, solicitation to murder Egyptian President Hosni Mubarak, conspiracy to murder President Mubarak, solicitation to attack a U.S. military installation, and conspiracy to conduct bombings. With Rahman imprisoned for having been involved with the Landmarks plot, Egyptian members of the Gamma Islamiyah began to ratchet up their activities. Rahman was well-received and adorned by his followers, even from other terrorist cells, and this included Dr. Ayman al-Swahiri and a Saudi living in the Sudan for the time being, Osama bin Laden. Egyptian authorities were now in a fierce battle with Egyptian fundamentalists from the Egyptian Islamic Jihad and the Gamma Islamiyah. With the Gamma Islamiyah being the main antagonist, Mubarak had no compulsion to use extrajudicial violence, even if you were merely suspected of affiliating with people from the radical cells. 
This caused an uproar from an already embittered society in Egypt. The evening hour of Saturday on April 9, 1994, saw Major General Raouf Kayarat of Egypt's anti-terrorism unit get inside his white Pegu vehicle in front of his home in the suburb of Giza, only to be met by an array of assailants who threw a grenade inside his car while showering it with gunfire. The car immediately became an inferno, and the death of Kayat was simply just the beginning of a major terrorist campaign against the Egyptian government and Hosni Mubarak. Kayarat was a major figure against the war of Gamma Islamiyah. With the orders to kill him came swiftly. The reaction was considered daring. Nowhere near as daring as what was in the upcoming plans, however. By 1995, Mustafa Ahmed Hassan Hamza, Gamma Islamiyah's military commander, hatched a plot to assassinate Hosni Mubarak, along with members of the Egyptian Islamic Jihad involved. The plan was simple. Follow Mubarak's motorcade and get close enough to shoot him on sight. With such tightened security, it surely would be a suicide mission. And on June 26, 1995, Mubarak was traveling to the Ethiopian capital, Addis Ababa to participate in the opening of an African summit meeting. According to Ethiopian authorities, quote, two teams of terrorists were assigned to the assassination attempt, two men directing the operation from an unidentified place outside Ethiopia and a nine-member hit team that entered the East African country, end quote. The attack was foiled by Mubarak's security detail to which two were shot in the process as assailants tried to block the road, with five of the nine men were killed. Ethiopian security detail arrested three surviving members, and according to the British media outlet, The Independent, quote, the motorcade carrying Mr. Mubarak, who had just flown into Addis Ababa from the opening of the Organization of Africa University Summit, had reached a point opposite the Palestine embassy when two vehicles blocked its path and gunmen opened fire on the president's car. As Ethiopian and Egyptian police officers fired back, Mr. Mubarak's driver was seen to wrench his car across the road and drive straight back to the airport, where the president immediately took his plane back to Cairo, end quote. Mubarak was stirred, but not shaken by the ordeal. It showed his steely resolve toward the very entities he had shown no quarter towards. This event, however, would serve against the very terrorist cells with an equally but more pronounced response that they would show no mercy, even for the family members. Mubarak swore revenge tenfold. Over the course of the next 18 months, led by the Egyptian security service, the SSI, they began cracking down on everyone affiliated or suspected to have affiliations with the Gamma Islamiyah and Egyptian Islamic Jihad. Even family members of those within these groups were detained some even mercilessly tortured in Torah prison and Egyptian police stations. Months felt like years. The ensuing violence from both the state security services and terror cells were becoming aware of Egyptians' most financially stable tourism industry. Egypt relies on its tourist hotspots from the pyramids to the dunes. An average of two and a half million people visit the awe-inspiring makes of Ramses' tombs as well as its multiple aging pyramids. 12% of the country's workforce is here, while also endorsing foreign workers to come and enjoy its benefits. 
Foreign workers meant taking away from Egypt's more deserving citizens. It also saw an influx of Western citizens taking part in enjoying what Egypt has to offer. It was an invitation, however, for revenge, one that would tarnish Egypt's tourism industry forever, while showcasing the extremes that terrorist groups born in Egypt would partake. With Rahman in a U.S. federal prison for the remainder of his natural life, Ahmed Rafai Taha took over as leader of Gamma Islamiyah. With Hamza in prison, Taha, a loyal subject to Dr. Ayman al-Zwahiri in Afghanistan, took the initiative to construct an operation that would affect the country while also placating the Gamma Islamiyah. With many members having previously served in the Egyptian military, some of the high-ranking members devised a plan to hold hostages at one of the main tourist sites located south of the country. Taha had previously threatened U.S. citizens, not just in Egypt, but also in Afghanistan. Back in 1996, Taha had publicly threatened to kidnap U.S. citizens in retaliation for the life imprisonment sentence of Sheikh Rahman. However, a bigger plot had hatched, with one of the hottest tourist sites selected, Luxor. The Deir al-Badri is located near the west bank of the Nile River. It is home to many of the country's awesome mortuary sites, one of them, the mortuary temple of Pashtaput. Pashtaput was the fifth pharaoh of the eighth dynasty of Egypt, while being its second female in such a position. The idea was to threaten Egypt's tourist industry, causing the country to enter a repression of sorts and to hurt the economy of Mubarak's government. The temple was understaffed, as per the common theme in Egypt. Poor security detail for its most sensitive industry. The members of Gamma Islamiyah simply had to blend in and trap tourists in the valley, which was surrounded by its large mountains that overlooked the temple as giant guardians to the long-deceased pharaoh. On November 17, 1997, at 8.27 a.m., Hagag Nahas of ISIS bus tours was driving a group of 30 Swiss citizens toward the temple. He dropped them off and drove away. He would return back in another hour. There would be a number of Japanese honeymooners this day as well. Meanwhile, six men dressed in black security outfits passed Saeed Ahmed Ghassan, a police guard at the entrance ticket booth. Ghassan asked for their tickets. One of them replied, here is your ticket, and shot Ghassan in the leg and torso. The temple security began opening return fire, but too late, as two were killed on the spot, leaving Ghassan indisposed at the gate. Satako Yamashita was with her newlywed husband when they began, began heard a commotion near the courtyard of the temple. The members of Gamma Islamiyah began to corral the visitors and shot at temple guards, so few while others hid from the initial attacks. The rifles used were Soviet Kalishnikovs, as were handguns, which were suspected to be stolen from a police station as the planners were former military officers. The echoing of the shots also gave the eerie sounds of impending shock and doom for many who visited the temple. They would act in pairs, often trapping separate couples and shooting them in their heads as they fell to the ground with slumped weight, which also made an insidious sound of impending death to those still alive. The worst, however, was yet to come. Many of the tourists were in pairs and were made to kneel before their armed captors while shooting them at will one by one. 
According to some survivors of the incident, they witnessed the heads of those shot explode like pumpkins. Others trapped inside the long corridor of the temple hid, some even with their children in tow. As the six men showed absolutely no compulsion to whom they killed, out came the long knives. These were meant for the men, and as some wailed on the ground, injured from the initial gunfire, their throats were laid open by the sharp blades of their murderers. Often loud gurgling sounds as they laid in excruciating agony for the short moments of their lives. As the blood soon drenched the very ground where many centuries ago, the ancestors of the temple once walked, bodies of the sum became the many and the shouts of pain and torment filled the site and echoed loudly as it bounced off the walls. According to the Washington Post, it soon became a massacre instead of a hostage situation. Quote, after dispatching several people in the main courtyard inside the gate, the killers moved up the ramp to the middle court, a vast open space in which some tourists apparently were killed where they stood. Others took refuge against the wall of a ramp that leads to the third level, which is closed for restoration. The real wall of the middle court consists of the birth colonnade on one side of the ramp and the punt colonnade on the other. Both colonnades were smeared with gore. A bloody handprint stood out on a sandstone pillar. Walls were splattered with human flesh, including pieces of scalp with hair attached, blood soaked the sandy floor, end quote. Meanwhile, as the situation became unbearable for remaining survivors hiding whatever crevasse they could, some hid under the bodies of the dead. The shots rang out to those running, and while those writhed in agony, their assailants often walked toward their injured prey and seemingly enjoyed the disposal before cutting them open, often desecrating their bodies by chopping off fingers, hands, and even head decapitation. The ordeal seemed like years for those who were in hiding. It was only 45 minutes. Time had literally stopped as the bright sun scorched the blood dry, leaving a painted dark expression on the floors of the Hashaput. It became a carpet of death. Nahas had returned back from the visitors, and according to him, only eight of the 30 would remain alive from the onslaught. As he drove just before the security checkpoint, the six men, some in bloody attire, had blocked the road from the bus going further. They forced Nahas to continue towards another tourist site near the temple. The bus stopped near the access road to the Valley of the Queens, about a half a mile from the Hashaput Temple. Security guards had blocked the road. The six men left the blood, the bus blazing outright. Three were killed with Egyptian police, while the remaining there three retreated in a nearby cave, ending their own lives. The carnage seemed to have finally ended. The Egyptian security services and police had descended toward the temple of Hashaput, where they witnessed utter barbarity on full display. They even made the more hardened officers wretch. Over 160 tourists that were witness to the day's events saw themselves become victims. While many were alive, over half suffered fatalities and gruesome injuries. Four Japanese honeymoon couples, 36 Swiss and three generations of a British family from Yorkshire, including a five-year-old girl, were among the victims. In all, 62 were murdered. Some even seen walking around in a zombie-like state, some without noses, ears, and even flayed limbs 
from the manacled killers of the Gemma Islamia. The floors ran red with blood, shrieking down over a hundred feet from the center courtyard. Other areas had clumps of flesh, and another area, a huddled group of executed people bent their last moments in a frenzied state of shock and terror. Rigor mortis settled in, making some bodies curled up in a rocking position. The walls of the temple had handprints of blood, which gave an almost hieroglyphic appearance. One body later found to have been flayed at the abdomen when one of the killers stuffed a leaflet, which inscribed the deeds of why the incident took place. It was to pressure the United States to release the imprisoned blind Sheikh Omar Abdelrahman. It was a sense of horror. It also shocked the entire world over. As the stories came out, that 62 people were killed by Egyptian terror cells. It wasn't just a global outrage, but Egyptian society who roared the loudest for true justice. If the original premise was to put the country at a total standstill of fear, it backfired tenfold. Mubarak had promised total and unrelenting justice for the country and its victims of the attack. The victims' families, however, were left with the eventual question, why? The hierarchy of Gamma Islamia responded in short time with a statement just days after the massacre. Quote, the Gamma Islamia could halt its military operations for a while if the Egyptian regime acts likewise and stops its unjust campaigns against the sons of Gamma, releases its prisoners, and returns Sheikh Omar Abdelrahman to his homeland and cuts relations with the Zionist entity. For 10 whole years, the Egyptian regime has waged a vicious war in its attempt to uproot the Gamma Islamia from the hearts of its people and sons. Each time the Egyptian regime failed in this confrontation, the result is the removal of an interior minister." End quote. But many people spoke out against the attacks and wondered why they happened in the first place. Who was it meant to hurt? Tourists are very important for the income of the tickets to restore the monuments. We make like 50, 60 million Egyptian pounds a month. We use this in building museums, restoring the Egyptian monuments, as we do everywhere. And this is why tourists is very important for the economy of Egypt. Now, I want to tell you one thing. Uh, accidents of terrorists can happen everywhere. But the most important thing when the Hatshepsut accident happened, every Egyptian was angry. We were so angry. Why those people are against Egypt? They're not against the government. They're against all of us. They're, they're not Muslims. <laughs> there is no any religion tell you to kill other people. Definitely they are not. Actually, what's done here at that time, it was not because in, it was not in the name of religion, of any religion. It was in the name of the politics. Would Egypt finally learn its lesson? After experiencing decades of extrajudicial abuse and torture, which helped shape the minds of extremists in which before they were not? In 2013, Egyptian President Mohamed Morsi swore in 17 new governors. One of them was Adrel Mohamed El Kayat, a prominent leader of Gamma Islamia who was also one of the primary architects of the Luxor massacre. Morsi, originally from the Islamist Muslim Brotherhood, 
had also pardoned one Gamma Islami, a member who was accused of trying to kill former President Hosni Mubarak. He had also previously called for the United States to free the group's spiritual leader, Omar Abdel Rahman, who was jailed for life over a bid to blow up New York's World Trade Center in 1993. It shocked many in Egypt, included Khalid Falni at the American University in Cairo, who would later go on to say, it's as if the Muslim Brotherhood is reaching out to the extremists. The problems of Egypt now lie out in the open instead of the dark cavernous prison tombs.